podcast that does not follow or adhere to a hero's journey. Damn you, Campbell. We're, we're on our own path. We're charting our own way, Amanda. That's right. I refuse to go through any ordeals or find the sword or what were the other ones? There's like 20 steps. <laughs> you got to go through the temples. Yeah. And cave? Yeah. Emerge from the cave? Walk into yeah. the cave? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what stage of the uh, hero's journey we'd be on in this podcast, technically. We're pretty deep in it, though. I feel like have we met our wizened kind of advice giver yet? Mm, maybe your brother, because he was, right? He, he was there so. for a bit. Yeah. It, maybe the great ordeal was when he retired, you know, temporarily, yeah. permanently from the pod. Who knows? If you have no idea why we're talking about the archetypal hero's journey, Joseph Campbell stuff, that is because you've stumbled into a book club episode. These are our analytical deep dive episodes. Uh, where we analyze and kind of discuss a book in spoiler-filled detail. Today we'll be talking about the essay collection called The Psychology of Zelda, which has been edited by Anthony M. Bean, so not written by. The essays are all written by different contributors. We do have social media accounts. Let me plug those first before I forget. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so easy to find us, easy to search. Give us a follow there if you want to keep up with what we're reading. I do promotions. Not always on time. Currently off by a bit, but that's okay. (laughs) General sense of what we're reading. You can also, of course, just follow the podcast feed on any major platform, and that'll take care of it. We post updates weekly that we do our book club episodes and every two weeks is the book recommendation so that's the cadence book club episodes will be filled with spoilers so today we'll be discussing the essays i guess through from the introduction which is its own little essay to the essay titled unmasking grief applying the kubler ross five stages of grief model to the legend of zelda majora's mask that's a long title <laughs> it is. It really is. Didn't know if I'd get to the end of it just now. I kind of just thought I'd li- I lived in it there. I thought I'd have to pitch a tent and just stay there permanently or temporarily. Anyway, so those are the first. Uh, it's approximately the first half, right? Page count wise. Yeah. Kind of, sort of. Yep. But those are the ones we read. So if you're looking to avoid spoilers, I mean, it's difficult to say. They discuss many of the games in the franchise here, so it's hard to say what we'll be spoiling precisely. Um, but if you're spoiler, you know, sensitive, then be aware of that. Do you want to quickly run through why you picked it? This was an Amanda pick. Um, it was actually a Christmas present um, that my brother gave to me because I, uh, my favorite Nintendo game to play <clears throat> is Zelda. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he often will give me just like, Zelda stuff uh, for presents, and he gotcha. thought that this would be fun for me since um, I minored in psychology and I love Zelda. So nice. You, if you want to take your relationship with the stories to the next level, yeah, elevated, uh, elevated those games to a new yeah, intellectual plane or something like that. So yeah. yeah, I think that sounds good. Content warnings, none, right? I mean. There's some yeah. grief and loss stuff, but these games are pretty, I guess, are, there's some archetypal stuff, but I don't know. It all feels so loose and broad that I don't think it can be, yeah. I don't really think there are any. I don't think so either. I mean, even the the games themselves, it's not like gory or anything like that. So there's no discussion yeah. of any of that. So yeah. the balance yeah. is pretty cartoonish. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, that's, again, what we'll be discussing today and for spoiler-averse people, now might be the time to pause and come back. It'll be up in the feed forever in the archive, so you can just come listen to this whenever you're ready. Um, again, we'll be discussing the first half of The Psychology of Zelda. Let's do our first segment then, Amanda. For a book club, we like to start with a 60-second summary challenge. This is when each of us gets 60 seconds to summarize the work. Uh, I'll go first, actually, because I think my summary is going to be pretty brief. <laughs> I think I can get this done. Um, so anyway, yes, that's that's what we're going to do. Uh, we each have a minute again to kind of summarize as best we can the entirety of this work so far. Uh, and I've got my timer ready, so I'll, I'll count myself down here. In three, two, one, go. Uh, basically, this whole book is just about archetypes so far. Do you know what an archetype is, listener? If you don't, they're going to explain it to you thoroughly and repeatedly and over and over again. <laughs> and it's about how Zelda is filled with different varying archetypes, some by Carl. Is it Jung? Jung? I, I, I only know the name by, by visuals, not by sound. There you go, Jung. Um, so, yeah, they basically just spend every essay applying those ideas in various ways, outlining how they work. However, the final essay about grief does introduce new ideas that are not about archetypes. And that was kind of interesting. It's about how the various settings and dungeons in one particular Zelda game embody a character's 
ability or inability to deal with grief and loss, and it kind of reflects how the narrative in some ways plays with that idea, and how many of the side characters are going through the stages of grief or how they represent the stages of grief. So it's a more uh, specific analysis applied to one game. All the other essays could have been one essay called Archetypes. Uh, Here's what archetypes are. And that's one minute. <laughs> any, um, any interjections there? I made that one comfortably. I I mean, that was pretty perfect, I guess. A yeah. lot of, um, <laughs> I wanted to give a lot of additional time to the final essay, at least, you know, final to us, since we're halfway through. Yeah. The uh, unmasking yeah. grief one. Okay, let me reset, yeah. and I'll let you fill in all the blanks I skipped over. Are you ready? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, three, two, one, start. Uh, so with the first essay, which is the embodying the virtual hero, um, the there is archetypes and discussions of archetypes spe- specifically with um, Young's um, and and ha- Carl Jung and how um, projection um, is really key to understanding the the pull of uh, the game of Zelda and the connection between Link and the player, him or herself. Um, and then it's dangerous to go alone. And this is the actual um, hero's journey. So it's taking all the games and explaining how the games are um, symbolically or literally the the hero's journey, um, according to um, whatever that guy's name is. Uh, <laughs> um, and then we have, yeah, Campbell. Um, and then the Nocturne of Personal Shadow and the Archetypal Attraction, I can only assume is more about Carl Jung because half of those essays are not in the book for me. Um, we'll get to that later. <laughs> Pause there. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the ones you missed then, the ones about Carl yeah. Jung. <clears throat> There's oh, even yeah. one of the essays, I'm not sure if you read this, uh, this one, but that kept referring to him as old man young, like he's a buddy <laughs> of the author. I thought that was a super weird move. I mean, stylistically, I guess it was like modestly intriguing because at least they were they were kind of going for a tone with that. But yeah, they just kept they only called him old man young. Yeah, that must have been in one of the uh, the chunks that was missing yeah. for me. Well, yeah. Do you want to lay that out quick? Yeah. So, <laughs> so in both the Nocturne of Personal Shadow and the Archetypal Attraction, um, in my copy of the book, which I is the same edition as Travis's book, according to like the yeah. picture that he sent me. Right. Um, mine is actually missing. Um, in both of those essays, it's like every other two pages, it's just a blank page. There's nothing there. Yeah. Strange. So, for example, I'll have like 78 and 79, but then I won't have 80 or 81. And it goes like that um, for those two essays. That's weird. Yeah. It's just so strange. Unexplainable. I mean, I'll try and fill in the blanks, but... I, hopefully my tone didn't give away my position too greatly, but I, I have not found this book to be for me, both because, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess let's just get into the specifics, right? Yeah, let's <laughs> anyway, do that's, it. Yeah, so Amanda's missing some things. I don't think it's critical. <laughs> Did you have the, the grief one? Yes, okay. so, I think which was my favorite yeah, one. The best by a mile, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's actually specific, and it, that makes things interesting, as it turns out. <laughs> right, You try and right. run down a 30-year franchise with, like, 30 games in an essay, it could be pretty boring because it's just generic statements over and over again that you could have said yeah. in one essay instead of four or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, so let's let's just dive into the specifics. So... I don't know. I guess I'll start with a quote about archetypes. It just comes up in every single essay up until the grief one. It's just so clearly what the book, you know, is concerned about in the beginning. Anyway, um, let me just read a quick, this is just an example. They're talking about the hero's journey and how this is from the, um, the it's dangerous to go alone essay. This is about a, one of the phases of the hero's journey called the ordeal. It says after he vanquishes the dungeon masters and sets right the nations of his allies, Link needs to face what Campbell referred to as the ordeal. And the ordeal, the hero must face a foe that shakes him to the core of his being and challenges him in areas where he is untested. In some of Link's adventures, this is a late stage dungeon boss like Xant or Bongo Bongo meant to provide Link with a final and significant challenge before he moves on to Ganon. However, one of the best representations of Campbell's ordeal stage is Shadow Link, who appears in multiple games throughout the series. Vogler describes experiences in the ordeal as one that requires the hero to look deep within to confront their own inner darkness and face the reality of their own death at a very profound level. And then, you know, what's better at that than Dark Link? So, I know it's a long quote, but I'm finding a lot of the analysis, and I think and I'm actually pretty certain now, having just mentioned the grief essay, 
But I think that my reaction to a lot of analyses like this, which is just that it seems really too shallow to be to grip me, it's just because they yeah. keep trying to describe the franchise and not a game within the franchise. Like, it's clear that as soon as they apply something to a specific game and really try and unpack that game and analyze it in detail, depth, that's kind of what I need from these. An analysis like this is so vague or broad that I'm like, I guess so, but isn't that true? Like, how many points have been made in these essays where you could just be like, that's true of any video game? (laughs) And I think that the problem in some of these early essays is I don't think that the scholars who wrote them, the academic people, like none of it's incorrect. None of the information is wrong, but it's also not specific enough to be interesting to me. A person who, as a hobby, does think and like spend critical time thinking about video games. I'm not like a passive gamer. So I, you know, there's like YouTube essays I watch or podcasts I'll listen to. So it's like, it's a, it's a real hobby of mine. And so I guess I just reading so many of these early essays, I was like, good Lord, like, that's all you're going to tell. You're going to, how many quotes were in the first part of this book where they basically said some, something to the extent of video games are powerful because the person gets to connect more deeply because they're the person doing the action. It's like, I don't, you, I don't need to see that analysis in five different ways. Like I get that. It's, <laughs> um, so anyway, that's a quote just to show. I just don't think that insight is that deep or interesting because it's just like, yeah, in any video game ever where you're upgrading a character, which is so many games, like, of course, there's going to be an ordeal where there's a new mechanic because games always want to introduce new mechanics. So it's just kind of like, yeah, I mean, this is true, but also it's not giving it's not insightful, I guess, (laughs) is my thing. Yeah. And even as somebody who uh, you, you never played Zelda, right? Or have you? Oh, I've played probably 10 of the 30 games, maybe more. I don't know. Okay, there you I, go. Yeah, I just so. don't have a Switch, so I have not played the new one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but um, I, I've probably played, yeah, definitely not half, because the thing is I don't own handhelds really, so like all those Nintendo DS and 3DS games, I never played those. But mm-hmm. the console ones, yeah, I've play, yeah, anyway, yes, sorry. It's a long-winded answer. Okay. Um, so yeah, like for me too, I'm like, I love Zelda. It's my favorite, um, game franchise. Uh, I don't know. Um, but, um, even, even for me, who's like, you know, a, a fan of, of all of them, um, they, I found the essays too. My, my critique as well immediately was just like, it's, it would be so much better if they could just focus in, if, if these essays, were specifically about like what makes Zelda unique in these aspects from other games. So if you're talking about like oh, yeah. Yeah. with the archetypes and with projection and stuff like that, like could you say specifically why it is that Link is the you know the best one out of all these other uh, games and all this stuff? So uh, to that point, what I liked is if we look at page um, seven. Uh, which mm-hmm. is, well, for me, it's page seven, which is <clears throat> from the essay Embodying the Virtual Hero. Um, it specifically talks about, like, so there's projection, um, which is when you um, relate to someone or something so much that you are uh, projecting yourself onto that person or thing. Uh, um, yeah. So here he's talking specifically about silent, how Link is silent and he doesn't actually have his own voice, um, mm-hmm, which right. is something that I, I thought was like a nice, a nice little piece to put in there to specifically talk about something that's, yeah, it's across all of the games, but why is that significant um, and how it makes this character unique from other games? Um, yeah. So let's see here. Uh, This silence on the part of the hero is a very deliberate choice by the designer. Series creator Shigeru Miyamoto has said that he wants the players to feel as if they are Link, and that introducing a voice actor or even scripted text would interfere with this identification. In essence, without a voice, Link becomes a semi-blank slate that the player can psychologically project onto. In psychology, the concept of proje- projection refers, broadly speaking, to the phenomenon of an individual projecting an aspect of their personality, self, or inner world outward onto an external person or object, usually without conscious awareness. Um, so, the it's 
Um, what I liked about that is that it specifically talks about how the, the choice of Link being silent as a character is because the creators wanted um, the players to feel even more connected to Link, which makes the game even more, I think, uh, personable and also makes it unique from, at least at the time, unique from a lot of uh, different other games. Yeah. Um, which is why each time there's a new iteration of Zelda, um, people are so gung-ho to go to it because there are little things about it that make it unique from other games. Like the fact that Link is silent and therefore well, we can have a connection with him. Yeah, the silent protagonist thing is fascinating and I think it would be, need to be in a different book because it would need to, like you said, it would need to compare and contrast against other games and franchises. It's It's a trend that was popular in the early days because of tech limitations, but I think right. now we're seeing in big open world like RPG type games like Horizon Zero Dawn or what's another like I guess like Elden Ring was recently and that's a sound protagonist. It's kind of its own weird little case. But I the common thing now is to have them be so talky. That's they've kind of swung right. hard opposite where it's like they get you know good voice actors like to do quality work and the tech is impressive. There's like real fa- facial animations and yada yada but you're right though the silent i don't know though with certain fidelity levels and and narrative beats having a silent protagonist also seems insane at times where you're like that person (laughs) just stabbed themselves and your reaction is just like "Uh (laughs) or you know whatever link's (laughs) noises are and so yeah no it was really spot on that was so great (laughs) yeah um hey listen um anyway yeah classic but no it's yeah so i just think again yeah, we fall back into our into our habits, don't we? Minus to edit a book that you know, critique it and edit the book that isn't here. But it, it I don't know. But again, I, these essays on their own merits. Like as long as you've ever heard of Joseph Campbell and you've watched a TED talk for five minutes about what that is, like yeah, of course it copy pastes onto these stories really well. But like it copy pastes onto so many video games well that that's where yeah. I was kind of left just wanting more from these. Yeah, the early ones. Yep. Anyway, I just found them to to overlap with each other like quite profoundly, which you know that yeah, that became my frustration. Did. I will say that if that yeah, if this last essay hadn't have been what it was, I my brain would have been really fighting this one because <laughs> I just <laughs> felt like I read the same sentence so many times. Um, let's talk about flow quick. This is a concept at page fourteen. I wanted to bring up. This is like a good pop psycho- um, psychology term. Um, this is on, again, 14. This is in the Embodying the Virtual Hero. It says, this kind of deep embodied immersion in the game environment is is an example of the experience of flow. Um, oh, gosh. Mihaly Siskiminchalyi? This is the, a name of the person. Ooh, that's a, I mispronounced that. Sorry. I had not prepared this. Siskiminchalyi? I think that's close enough. Who first coined the term as a psychological concept in his 1990 book, Flow, so you can find his name that way, describes flow as a state of optimal experience where one becomes gracefully and effortlessly absorbed in a task. This is the state whereby expert athletes become completely immersed in their sport, blah, 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 or which a musician is completely immersed in the activity of creating music. So too can this state be experienced by the video game player once they have learned to effortlessly make link, run, jump, climb, aim and shoot arrows, attack and defend. In fact, this plethora of refinable actions sets the stage for immersive flow. In a recent study, psychologist Alder Studer and video game researcher Michael, Michael Hitchens found that video game players' experience of flow states directly correlated with their sense of identification with the game characters. The more deeply the player is able to get into the game through controlling the actions, the more mastery they achieve, etc. So... This is, again, a concept where I look at this and I think, sure, I don't even, I think the idea of flow has also been questioned and challenged and stuff. So it's like, eh, I know that's like a pop psych term. That's, I don't know if that's like deeply, (laughs) deeply held anymore is like a real thing. But even if it is, I just don't think its application here is that interesting in terms of Zelda, like infinite games myriad games can in, can induce a flow state and some of them don't have characters some of them don't have avatars like some of the times i feel most in the flow like think of a puzzle game like tetris that induces like un unquantifiable flow uh puzzle games yeah. often do this and so that has nothing to do with avatars and so I'm just left with a sentence like this. Again, it's how I reacted to a lot of the early essays was, yes, this seems right. I'm Again, roughly, I don't know if academically flow is, is held up anymore. But also, like, I don't, it's just such a, it's just so simple that if you've heard of both of these concepts, I just don't know if this is going to enlighten 
at you. I, I guess, you know, there we go. I've gotten to my long-winded point. Like, who is this for? I don't know. I, I just don't think it's me. Because I think I've thought yeah. about these things already before. And I, I didn't need the 101 again. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good question. Like, who the audience is. I think, I think it's going to be super fans of Zelda. And mm. who, but, I think it's But, gonna... like, who also didn't do undergrad studies? Right. Because yeah. then it's like, because, like, it, yeah, if you've never heard of what an archetype is or you don't know who Joseph Campbell is, then I'm sure this stuff is. I mean, I taught my sixth graders Joseph Campbell. I mean, obviously, and who knows what they retained, right? That's like an impossible thing to measure. But, like, yeah. anyone can get those basic <laughs> concepts, you know? It's, it's pretty simple stuff. <laughs> I think the obviously the cross cultural stuff and his actual academic work is can't be simplified that much. But the basic archetypal stuff, you can show students at pretty young ages, like, Hey, do you notice how that story and that story kind of do the same thing? Well, hey, guess what? So I just, I don't know. Yeah, it's not, this. these essays were not bad, but because they're not works, these are not essays written for art. They're pretty straight down the middle academic, like in, informational almost bits of writing, but the writing's not going to grab you then. I mean, it's, you're not coming here for, for the syntax or whatever. Yep. Uh, and so that just meant that like these ideas, I just find myself kind of like, what else what elsing is that a term where i just kept saying like well yeah but what else do you got like can you give me something right. more interesting or specific or maybe you know that isn't just so i don't know straightforward yeah uh, speaking of academic <laughs> sounding um yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, that like the the intros and the conclusions for these just it reminded me so much of when i was doing my undergrad work and the way that you know you have your hook and you have this uh, and then you go from like specific back out to general and sure. you have the yeah. end hook and all that stuff so on page three which is a part of the introduction the last paragraph <clears throat> take this book as it is dangerous to go through this journey alone and be armed with the understanding and knowledge of why we as video gamers love this series so hoist up your hylian shield and the master sword and continue forth if you wish to not just remember the different legend of zelda games but discover more about yourself and the virtual world in which we spend so many hours playing it's like mm. it's just that just a slight cringe from like the cheesiness of it yeah uh but it's just it just, to me that just screams academia and and screaming like i want to be relevant and <laughs> yeah where you, and uh, so. you don't quite and because you're on the leash i don't know if i don't know if that metaphor is actually the most appropriate but <laughs> um but you're because you're so restrained clearly restrained uh, in terms of style voice and all that that it's like it when it creeps through it's almost worse it's like you just write this like a just write this like an ai would i guess may as well I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah and i haven't been in the the academic world for in terms of you know stylistic things and everything um so it, it, so seeing this again is you're right it did dredge up some of that feeling in me where i'm like these ideas are fine i, I again think i i do believe that if i was tossed into the video game studies class this is 101 and it's like can i get bumped up like could i be in the 301 or something like i, I think yeah. i get all this i don't really need <laughs> you know this level of thought with, about these games at this point but i do think too that it's like well it's also kind of dry i don't yeah you just i don't i almost wish these essays were more like argumentative or I'm not sure, but stylistically, just bold because it is—it's pretty pitched down the middle. It is, yeah. Should we do? Because I have a quote from the one that I really liked, though the grief one. I Should do we too. end with that yeah. one? Yeah, we may as well. Makes sense because <laughs> that was the one we both seemed to like. Um, so let's talk about some of the analysis here. Mine's from one twelve. This is about uh, a couple of the masks. So in this version of the Zelda game. Um, it, you wear the character wears different masks and you gain different powers based on those. You also change appearance. So it's like you transform. Anyway, the uh, paragraph reads, whereas the Deku mask or Deku mask symbolizes denial's shadow side, another mask, Kamaro's mask, exemplifies the positive aspects of this stage. As Kubler-Ross notes, there's grace in denial. It is nature's way of letting in only as much as we can handle. Once a beloved dancer, Kamaro's spirit haunts Termina. Unable to face the shock of his own death, he appears in ghostly form whenever he hears music. In one of many side quests, Link can encounter the ghost, um, and then he plays the song of healing and traps the spirit in a mask. Later, Link can wear this mask, if 
effectively becoming him, which, yeah, and teaches final dance to the Rosa sisters, dancers in search of the perfect dance. Camaro's insistent denial of his own death ultimately allows his final dance to survive him, suggesting that denial is nuanced and that understanding those nuances is an important part of moving through the stage, etc. So... Yeah, I mean, this is just much more interesting to me. <laughs> it, yeah. Firstly, well, let's run through, you know, the, the list of the reasons why. Uh, firstly, it dredges up specific examples and interesting little nuanced parts, details from the books, or sorry, from the games, which we can consider text. Like, it's actually doing text work, <laughs> pretty specific mm-hmm. text work. And so it's like, yeah, I played Majora's Mask when I was a kid. I remember roughly kind of the moon and some elements of the game, but like seeing an example like that's very good. Shakes up the memory, you know, read something specific. Two, second thing that it did well, it actually is using some direct quotes from Kubler-Ross, which I found helpful because, of course, I knew what the stages of grief were, but no, I've never read her, like, research and explanations. So I thought those quotes were really interesting. Now, granted, again, that's the same, you know, take that critique and reverse it. And that's why I thought the first parts were so uninteresting because it's like, man, I've already studied all this. Like this isn't these applications are not that deep or interesting or specific. So I'm just not like getting much out of this. Um, But this is doing that, too, because I'd never read her own writings. And then three, like it actually analyzes the plot of the games and some of the mechanics and how the mechanics play in and reads that thematically with the Kubler-Ross steps. And like it's just it's just specific. It's just way more interesting to me. I found it. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Ooh, that doesn't work. Ooh, that kind of does. And so the whole essay just felt that way. Like I was actually mentally engaging with something that had, um, I don't know, nuance to it, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly why I I felt that this was the best essay thus far as well, is that it, it has that specificity that we so crave while we're reading the other ones. Um, yeah. And also, I, I they really go in depth with this game and like have all these particular scenes. And as I'm reading each scene, I'm like getting these flashbacks of playing and I'm just like, Oh man, that's such a great scene. And Oh yeah, man, yeah. I need to go back and play that. Like the whole time I was just like, I need to go back and play the game. <laughs> now I think going into it, this is a little off topic, but it's worth it. Going into this book, wouldn't you have bet a bajillion dollars that there was going to be one essay about this game? Because Majora's Mask is widely considered like the strangest maybe in the whole franchise. Yeah, for sure. Because it's thematically weird. It's off-putting. It is kind of grief-stricken, as the essay makes note of, and it's sort of like tonally very downbeat, and it's this very time dark, loop, yeah. depressed, dark, like yeah. fatalistic world. And and I mean, you do save things, quote unquote. But as the essay so well outlines, it's more about kind of coming to emotional terms with something than it is even like doing anything impressive. <laughs> um, although you do, I mean, you fight bosses and all that stuff. So yeah, like I, I mean. I'm very curious to see how the back half of this collection goes because this is by far the like the naughtiest, weirdest Zelda game. So now I'm like, yep. well, I wonder if they can do a similar essay to intrigue me, not about Majora's Mask. I guess we'll see. Right. <laughs> I think they could do a lot probably with um, Breath of the Wild. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll see. They they barely mentioned Breath of the Wild. I feel like in the in the yeah, it the just essays gets thus its, far. Yeah, it gets its brief mentions. Yeah. What was your quote from um, this one? Uh, So mine is on page 114. While Link has already experienced this loss of accomplishment once before in Clocktown, this is the first time that Link faces the consequences of turning back time. The temple he completed, the people he helped, and the side quests he solved are all undone when he turns back time. These losses give rise to anger and frustration for Link and players. Um, So I'll stop there. But... What I thought was interesting is that it's not just Link's anger, but the the authors of this piece also talk about player anger. Like, we get frustrated as we're playing because we're like, oh, I just completed that. Like, I got to yeah. do it again? Yeah, or, yeah. like, what's happening? Um, and it's an interesting point that I, I – the one thing that I would I would have liked them to kind of expound on that a little bit more because it also ties in with some of the other um, essays about, like, projection and stuff like that. And, and perhaps if they – if the other essays even had taken that aspect and talked about projection um, – and how that makes the player feel as far as like our own frustrations and our own anger. I, I think that would tie yeah. it all together really nicely. Yeah, no, and the, it's funny how little, it, of course, it's academic, so it's all very formalized and academic, but there's very little about, you know, personal experiences, the people actually playing the games. And I right. just think that kind of personal responsive in the 
in a personal responsive sense. Like, I just think that writing is more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. That I think is, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Cause I feel, feel like we often resort, or I should say I at least resort to that kind of edit critique a lot, which is just kind of, again, inherently unfair, kind of absurd, but it's just like, eh, I wish this book was a different book. <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I hope I don't resolve to that analysis too often, but it does feel sometimes where I'm just asking a thing to be a different thing. That's kind of my reaction. But this essay I thought was, yeah, it was great. I, I enjoyed a lot of the examples. The reading was fun. I had never, of course, applied that reading to that thing. So that was just intriguing to follow. It was kind of fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Good to see that thought happen. And should we do some motifs then? Any other broad, uh, just overall reactions? I know we gave some, but. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I, for the, the two essays where I could not actually like read them, the, the nice thing about the way that academic papers are written, um, is that the intro and the conclusion just summarize the main points. And these essays are so broad anyway that I kind of got, like, I think the gist of what they yeah, were trying to say. It's likely. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's that's pretty nice. But also it's it's kind of indicative of, of how uh, style is definitely not something that you want to... Yeah. It's just I'm clear that w- <laughs> what I need from these is for the, a game to be an essay, not a paragraph within an essay, because I just don't, I just don't need a paragraph level analysis of any of these games. They're all so similar that you really, I think with Zelda too, you kind of have to dig into some details and narrative like specifics, because otherwise it's just kind of it ends up being archetypal. Which is fine if you've never heard of what an archetype is, but if you have, it's like, well, that's not... (laughs) I get that it's a good example of it, maybe even an exemplar of how archetype can work and shape and shift, but it's not going to, I don't know, intrigue me or something. Let's do my OT first, then, because I think mine might fail for you pretty hard if you don't have some of these. So let's try Mm -hmm. it and see if it fails. (laughs) Um, For years, I should be able to tag in pretty well. The motif segment, which we'll do now is when we each pick out something from the work that we want to explore, one motif per person, obviously, that's where the title comes from. And we are basically going to run through the collection so far, how it shows up, examples of it, ways it's working, not working, etc. I went with charts of dubious helpfulness. Do you think the charts have been deeply helpful in this book? So the only charts that I had were the... Um uh, what is it? The it's dangerous to go alone, which is the the, long the Campbell one. one. Yeah, and or so wait, the, the are you talking about the circle where they show the journey in yeah, a circle? Yeah, so there's okay. A, mm-hmm, so there's okay. a journey in a circle, and then there's also like the several pages the of chart. the chart. Yeah. Um, so let's yeah, start so there. That, that is the first one I wanted to discuss. So I'm glad you got that one. Okay. <laughs> the circle chart, by the way, I actually think is fine. It might be the only one yeah. where I thought this is pretty essential. Again, not for me, who has seen the TED Talk video a thousand times. I taught it to sixth graders for years, so I do not need to see that. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. And But anyway, I think it's helpful because there is that threshold of like leaving the world returning that I think in that um, model is really important to see. So anyway, that's all good. Uh, 40 through 41. This is an insane chart. Now, is it insane? Should it exist, though? Yes, it should. Of course it should. For academics, it should. For people trying to do deep cross-comparison analysis of these games, it should. Like, of course this chart should exist. Uh, Let me reframe. Is this chart interesting or helpful to read for a person just reading and trying to learn? Like, I don't know. Not really. I just, I look at something like this and I'm like, couldn't you just take the three most interesting ones and just compare them against each other in a chart instead to exemplify like, okay, here's how sometimes they mess with it. Here's how sometimes it doesn't work. Here's how sometimes it fits perfect. Like, I don't, this is just such a maximalist academic way of doing it where it's just like, here's all the data. I'm going to spray it at you in a fire hose. Like, hope you think it's interesting. (laughs) I just don't. It's just like, I, I mean, I did look it over for a little bit, to be honest with you. I mostly looked at the Breath of the Wild one because it's such a beloved game and I've never played it. So I was like, I wonder how different it is, or I wonder how it breaks the mold. And it kind of does, but mostly doesn't, like, you know, almost every Zelda. And so, I don't know. Yeah, did you find this chart intriguing? I, so I looked at the first, I think, two pages of it, that like the first the first and the second grouping. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, well, this is, you know, unnecessary. So 
I just stopped. But it <laughs> well, was like so many for repeat. Me. That's kind. Of, but <laughs> yeah. I, in the, in one sense, I respect the chart because I'm like, I see why you had to do this to prove to the reader, hey, look, I laid it all out for you. Do you see how samey all this is? It's archetypes. It's the same. It repeats. Yeah. Whatever. But also, it's like, well, yeah, that's so. That's definitional to Zelda. Everybody who's played it knows this. Give me the interesting yeah. stuff. Like, where are the right. where are the breaks? Where maybe the game has something to say, or where where was a bold choice made? And talk me through. Show me how that's different from another one. Or I don't know. Right. Again, this is just like I don't. I almost appreciated that it was here, but it's like I don't want to be reading this. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, page eighty-two. Do you have that one? <laughs> Nope. Okay. It's it, I can describe it extremely well. Picture a big box and then cut the box into four rectangles of equal size. You with me there? The top box says the word beauty, which is the form of beauty. Below that box, there is the word beauty next to a person's head like a thinking bubble. That is the concept of beauty. Below that, there are a, a butterfly, a flower, and a mountain, and that says individual beauty entities. And then below that, it says imitations of beautiful entities, which is those same things but in pictures. So what this is trying to do, it's trying to get us to understand how there, how things have a primary form or an ideal form, and then conceptualization happens, and then your brain conceptualizes beauty and then sees examples of it and recreates it, etc. Um, just another example of how I don't think... I know you can't see the chart, so I know that description was kind of crazy sounding. I just don't no, think I, I get it. I don't think the visual because it has the arrows between them to show you that like beauty just exists. It's just a pure th- idea. Then humans think of it, and so then it becomes a concept, and then then we pick examples of it, and then that's how, and then we try and recreate that. Like I just don't see how the flowchart visual of this helps. I do think maybe the picture of the kind of person thinking about it versus it existing but i just think that's a task better left to describing than visualizing or something you know describing with words i should yeah. say so i it's just like i'm not sure who this chart is for again it's one of those questions of like i get that explaining archetypes and also trying to explain like i guess this is sort of a platonic ideal sort of philosophy analysis whatever i understand that can be tricky but i don't know the picture was just so simplistic that it's like you could have just done this in half a paragraph instead i was gonna ask um if if there was no written explanation there is of, but like, beneath it okay so then what's the yeah, oh beneath it instead yeah, of it within yeah. the essay itself okay yeah unnecessary <laughs> just just take that information and insert it into your paragraph and actually we like, can just we can, <laughs> i'm just gonna send it to you now i don't even know why i didn't do that why why is this an entire page? I, do, I don't my know. my question. Uh, listeners, <laughs> I sent it to Amanda just now. You will not have realized that, but I texted her the image she couldn't see. Yes, yeah, totally unnecessary. Um, the explanation underneath the little italicized explanation or whatever, it you don't need that chart at all. <laughs> Yeah, Why is it there? D- dubious helpfulness. Like I said, I'm like I don't. I mean, it's not. It's like some of the other essays. I'm going to lump it into the same blanket criticism of just it's not wrong, but I don't think that especially that first visual. I'm like, why does this even need to exist? I don't that, like explaining the difference between the abstract existence of a concept and then how the human mind tr- con- conceptualizes. That's a very complicated thing that like I think you're going to need words to do and not like two boxes mm-hmm. with weird simple clip art but whatever <laughs> <laughs> um, the final chart that I want to talk about du- dubious helpfulness I also sent a picture of it to you it is a chart showing the different um, they call them like paths of valor which is a within the so within the tradition of the hero's journey the Joseph Campbell one there's kind of a sub archetypal thing about how if you trace these heroic archetypes often they break down into the warrior the healer, the ranger, the rogue, the spellcaster, the engineer, and the athlete. And then these are different, uh, these are orphan, I should say, archetypes, and how Link can embody three of them, the spellcaster, the ranger, the warrior. Uh, this chart, I think, is actually un- is actually actively bad or unhelpful because yeah, the there's way- no point to it. Yes, not at all. <laughs> like, like actively <laughs> not at all. But the reason I'm especially offended by it is because because all of the roles surround the circle saving Hyrule, it looks like they're all going to do it. But so right. then it's like with the three that Link can be get the arrows, but then Link's pointing at the roles like. 
I, again, wh- I just don't understand the flow chart of this. Like, why are the other roles even there if they he, if yeah. he can't be them? I don't get. Like, what's the what is the visual trying to help the reader distinguish? Because if I, it's just the roles he can or cannot be, then why are the arrows pointing at saving Hyrule, the hero of time? Like, it's it's mixing in, I guess, like plot development in the games with the like potential roles he could have but i don't get why those visuals need to mash up i think i'm just like literally logically flummoxed by it i just don't even understand the premise of it (laughs) um anyway what what do you think Uh, yeah i also am struggling to understand why this is it was it just like a requirement like to be in in these this essay collection like you have to have a graphic at some point (laughs) i feel like a couple uh... for a couple of them i feel like it yeah honestly or i think so (laughs) yeah yes and and it's also uh, he is a healer at times right i mean he plays the healing song like he has a healing song in ocarina of time and in majora's mask like yeah so it's a case of (laughs) let's do the edit then we're so good at it amanda we're so adept at it wouldn't the more interesting (laughs) essay have been to take those seven things and pick each of them apart or like Pick, mm-hmm. pick a game for each one where he maybe embodied it kind of, but maybe kind of failed. Like, I don't, again, I don't know. I, I'm coming away from so many of these just wishing it was all so much more specific and detailed yeah. or something. And, and something like this is just, <laughs> I don't know. It's generic to the point of almost, I think on that one, active meaninglessness. Like, I truly actually don't get why that needed to be done. Like, I, anyway, yeah. the other ones are like, questionable, not that interesting, uh, wh- whatever, kind of helpful, dubious. This one is weird. That one I was actively confused. So mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. why we needed that... to see all the rules printed out and then the plot mixed in. I don't get it. <laughs> Doesn't help. It, yeah, it's not in necessary. what way does it help me differentiate the roles? Like, I don't, that, those <laughs> pictures don't, I don't understand the differences between them or how he embodies or doesn't embody them. So, yeah, yeah that was the last one for my motif. I'm going to keep, obviously, a sharp eye out on the back half of the book's charts and graphs just to maybe pick up on some useful ones, uh, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. Let's uh, switch over to your motif. What did you got? Um, so I chose the most obvious, I think, um, where they each one seems to argue, each essay seems to argue that the game has is relevant because it has some kind of either healing or uplifting mm. power for the player. So, I um, mean, just immediately, Amanda, no. The most obvious one is archetypes. It's just neither of us picked it. <laughs> Every single essay except for one of them, the crux or the core of the whole thing is archetypes. But we were just both generous and did not do it. Yeah, Yeah. Young's archetypes, Campbell's like anyway. Yeah, you got to be you got to be more kind to your own takes. You came up with something more subtle than what they were offering you. It's archetypes. We should have. Yeah, archetypes is the obvious one. We just it was so obvious that I don't think there's. Do we have anything to say about it? Mm, nope no okay so anyway take it away (laughs) (laughs) um so starting with the introduction at the very beginning um again referring to that uh final paragraph that made me kind of cringe um it what it's arguing he says that these these games help players discover more about themselves thereby um once you discover more about yourself you understand yourself more which then allows you to make any changes that you need for a happier life um then we go to the first essay, which is embodying the virtual hero. Um, and here it talks about projection and the idea of like psychological growth through the projection. So once um, when Link is able to defeat everything and comes out, you know, winning, mm-hmm. then what that does um, uh, is that it transfers onto the player and the player goes out feeling uplifted and capable and things like that. He even says on page 10, confidence, perseverance, and triumph become lived experiences rather than distant impossibilities. So it gives almost like a sense of hope that you can also overcome your own um, issues in real life by playing these games. How do you feel about Um, that? You buying that? I think that there's I don't I don't know about the depth of that for me personally, but yeah. once when you beat a game, you do kind of like feel really good for that day at th- least, and I you're think, just like, you know what? Yeah, that was good. There there was a woman who did a this is again TED Talkification, but she did a TED Talk about kind of applying game success feelings to to like corporate environments and like real world issues and stuff. And I, just none of it's translated because gamifying real things often turns them into, like, the games just kind of suck, to 
to, you yeah. know, it's like tracking your recycling with a daily app and it giving you a little reward badge or whatever. It just like sucks to interact with. <laughs> it's just like not, yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm just so dubious of these claims. I think the other thing that's obvious and uh, I, to me anyway, and I've always been on the side of the issue. So it's, and I know it's maybe even hot button or something, but like, I always think that games are addictive and it's, I know it's not conclusively proven and even like really seems dubious to claim it. Um, but I just think that's also unexplored. Like there's nothing in a video game's effect on the person's mind that says they have to leave the game or like that it has to transfer out. It just seems to me it would create a feedback loop to keep you in the game. Like to, mm. doesn't it incentivize you like sticking or it's like my, my ability to play Zelda well might directly translate for my ability to play another third person action game. Well, it's like, wouldn't I just transfer my skills over there and like be, go be better at that. I don't know. Anyway, I've always found these like, kind of um crossover or sort of like generalization claims about how games make you feel just dubious i guess my personal takes that makes sense um then then you you don't agree with all of these essays um (laughs) i well i don't know i i yeah i would say i am more skeptical towards a lot of them but see that's why the grief one i'm not skeptical too because it's a textual reading of the game's themes which i don't dispute because it's a textual reading like that game doesn't does did that essay about grief make the case that it should help us grieve i don't think it did or maybe it didn't i just didn't pick up on it Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, it's just like I don't – I was buying a lot of the reading of the game, but I guess I in the end if the point is, oh, and that would help a person heal, like, ah, I don't know. I struggle with this. I also think um, – again, feel, you should jump in here and t- tell me what your thought is, perspective on this, but – I I find that the media that does this to me most effectively are books still and sometimes mm-hmm. movies can really help me like question a belief or or shake a kind of foundational part of who i am and i just games just don't do that to me i just like them for other reasons i like feedback loops yeah (laughs) yeah i i think that it's the same for me um i i know that for me books in particular can really affect the way that i think and feel Mm, um yeah TV shows, movies, I guess like sometimes. I will say that the ASPCA commercials always make me cry and make nice. me want to go out there and just like volunteer for animals. That's just music um, manipulation. They're just manipulating you with music. Yeah. Cowards. And the, and those little kitty cats crying into the camera. Oh, I cry every single time. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, they got my number. Yeah. <laughs> they know me. <laughs> And they've, and they've got um, Sarah McLaughlin's. Yeah, like, that, that much is clear. Wait, is that are those the Sarah McLaughlin ones? I actually don't yep. know. <laughs> they are, yeah. In the eyes of an angel. Arms of an angel, whatever. Yeah. Arms, yeah. In the arms Classic. of the angel. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the next essay is um, It's Dangerous to Go Alone. Um, and here we ta- um, the author writes about um, what's called parasocial interaction and he says mm-hmm. putting a person in the position to reimagine their lives through the framework also pause um did the did the pronoun antecedent issues like bother you at all with their writing no i think in academia they're just kind of giving up on i think the singular plural thing is a total lost issue <laughs> I just don't it think was, it, it was driving me insane. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's tough. I, I will say, as a person on the uh, inside outside, the SAT is giving up on it too. They're also removing that uh, as like a grammar thing. That might just go the oh way of the gosh. dodo, and then maybe it will be a all plural. Uh, who knows? But yeah, I mean, I guess I notice it because I was trained, obviously, to notice it. <laughs> but at the same time, I think um, stylistically, it's just kind of evaporating. Yeah. So anyway. It, mm. It was driving me crazy. Um, Anyway, putting a person in the position to reimagine their lives through the framework of a story gives them additional power to make the changes they want to or know they need to make. The hero's journey is particularly adept at promoting identification between us and its central character in a way that encourages parasocial interaction and the ability to reimagine our lives through story. Um, So uh, the author is arguing that with projection and um the idea of the parasocial um interaction 
we are able to see issues and understand issues in our real lives um, as as they come up symbolically we, we symbolically deal with it in the game and then we are able to see in our real lives like how we can make certain changes so again that idea of healing and of um, progressing as people as players um, and, and and taking that to our real lives Um even in <clears throat> the Nocturne of Personal Shadow, which I, again, did not fully read for the reasons I stated yeah, before, uh, right. <laughs> um, I was able to, anyway, um, pick up on the end of their introduction. Through these undertakings, Link and the player are reminded of just how important it is to confront their personal shadow and achieve individuation, lest they give in to their dark side and become altogether evil like Ganondorf. <clears throat> so the idea of individuation there and confronting personal shadow, again, learning something from the game, taking that and uh, making um, oneself better. Then we have um, well, the archetypal attraction. Do you, do you attraction. remember those moments in those games where it's like, because I, I, when they talked about Dark Link or Dark, you know, whatever that's called. Yeah, I don't, it's inter- Link, it, It's yeah. interesting, though, because this is where I, I, I just struggle with this disconnecting in video games analytically the mechanical stuff versus the narrative stuff. But it's like Link is such a non-person he doesn't speak he's your avatar whatever so it's like my memories of shadow link i just don't remember that being a point of narrative um like doing the narrative thing they say it's doing like revealing inner darknesses or inner because he he doesn't really have any explicit i don't know everything's so like implied with link and it's just sort of he's a mute thing that you can put into whatever you want and so then i think the mechanical side of that kind of might work as an analysis where it's like because the game requires you to do and react to certain things differently than before that maybe you're Mm -hmm. but i just find there's a blending or an assumed kind of blending of those concepts in these some of these that just again bugs me because it's just not how i think about games or something or it's like i just don't I think because often the textual narrative side of games can be so bland or generic that like when people attribute deep kind of contemplation, reflection, improvement, I think in the mechanical side, that's true. But I don't I don't think my brain like processes that over to the narrative side. Hopefully that made sense. I I just think that's kind of an assumed thing. A lot of these essays and I think a lot of like more analytical video game talk sometimes assumes, but I, I struggle with this idea because I just don't, when I'm playing the game, I just don't think my brain is blending those things. Well, if they had <laughs> brought in more of, um, I think the, the dialogue. So did you ever play twilight princess? Yeah. The wolf one, the dark world. Yeah. 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 And it's like the, the it's a shadow world and, yes. and yeah, yeah. The, the twilight world. Um, so like stuff like where where he has to where Link has to um, confront his um, shadow self or whatever. Like if they had um, if the author of this piece had um, taken the time to analyze some of perhaps the uh, dialogue, obviously not Link's dialogue, but the dialogue where, where they're talking at Link to show yeah, that yeah. the you know like giving us specific pieces that we can look at and be like oh it is about um the you know his foibles or whatever like it, that I think would have really helped with their argumentation well and I think maybe the, I I'm certain they did but it's again it's just like the paragraph thing versus the essay length like i don't think i don't yeah. just don't know if a paragraph's going to convince me because i've had this deeply i now have this deeply rooted seated disconnect with games where i feel like sometimes the critiques of them that i read or i think part of what it is cuz i've noticed this with some dnd type crossover like i i don't think i can do imagined narrative character connection well i do need that to be explicit for me and because these games don't do a lot of explicit characterization for link like i don't think you're ever going to really sell me in the idea of much of a journey it's again i know me as the player i as the player have improved through playing but i don't know there there is a disconnect for me i'm not sure how else to explain it it's something i'd have to you know well, take time to really articulate, but I just thought I'd bring that up because it is something that I think all these essays almost assume 
that like right. the player will be able to connect with it or take things away or you know um, apply lessons to their own life and it's just like man I don't know that just doesn't even when I think of the games of the last decade I've, I've been infatuated with like it almost never crosses over in that way at least not that I've mm. noticed maybe this is deep just subconscious stuff <laughs> something I don't know yeah yeah I don't know I, I have not uh, before like reading these essays I, I hadn't thought that deeply about video gaming before so yeah yeah hey, you know it's still pretty <clears throat> new um, art phenomenon you know it's it's early days relatively speaking so yeah um, the next one archetypal attraction uh, from page 100 um, it's the very last sentence these archetypes are strong and through symbolic play keep pulling us into the storyline pulling us down into the realm of the game and increasing our self understanding every time um, so again, the idea that we can improve through self-understanding. So there's that. Um, so finally, we have Unmasking Grief, which is our favorite piece. And you were asking how that could. So when player... Oh, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, this is the one where I wondered, because my memory of the essay now, I know I gave that like one mm -hmm. quote, but my memory was that it was an interesting, good, close reading with some, you know, psychology obviously blended in. It was like through that lens. And so that's my, I don't remember any specific claims from that essay about how I as the player should be able to do those processes better because of the game, other than just like mm -hmm. implicitly, of course, it's teaching narrative lessons about like what grief is and what it can look like and how the stages, you know, again, implicitly might work. So I get all that, but I just don't remember any claims like that. I'm probably just misremembering. Uh, there's only like one sentence, I think, mm. and it's uh, Majora's Mask is itself an intricate puzzle box of the Kubler-Ross model, bringing both the player and Link ever closer to the transcendent growth that can follow grief. Uh, co that's copy-paste analysis. You could just say that about any concept. Like, basically, that's just <laughs> because you have exposure to a thing, you're more likely to get the thing. <laughs> like, yeah, again, it's not wrong, I guess. Like, I suppose playing Majora's Mask might help a person process their own grief better in a very background sort of passive absorption type of way. But, I, yeah, I mm -hmm. don't know. That is explicit te text in that game, though, that he wants Navi back and Navi's gone. So, yep, um, yep. Yeah, interesting. Any other examples of the player interaction effects on the player? Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure there's more. I just, meh. <laughs> it was, well, it was all pretty much the same argument. Is, you're right. And what's, yeah, it is. It totally was, is. And I, again, because I go in with such a high level of skepticism towards that concept that I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think games have deepened my love of a lot of things, narrative and otherwise. I like the challenge of games. I think it's a good place for me to kind of like be competitive with something in a healthy way to like face. But I, I don't know though. Like again, it's that applying it to your own life stuff. Like I don't think so. <laughs> I've beaten way harder games than I have achieved stuff in my life. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like I don't. I don't think it's translating well. If it is, if it's supposed to. <laughs> anyway, um, cool. And no other thoughts on those motifs. Nope. I'm Any good. other useless charts you want to talk about? No. Let's leave them in the past. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get we'll get there. Um, let's do our final segment then for part one book clubs. We're going to make a list. Let's end with that. These uh, lists are going to be tailored to the book we've read. We always pick a specific theme for that book to try and make it you know somewhat unique, memorable, whatever. And we love making a list, people. Let's rank some stuff. You picked the theme for this one, so I'll let you go first. The theme is top three moments that made me want to play. Do, do we want to just say any game or? Or were you thinking just Zelda games? I was thinking just Zelda. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of how I did it, too. Well, kind of, sort of. We'll get there. But, yeah, why don't you start us off your number three moment? My my number three is uh, from page 99 where uh, the writer was talking about transforming Ganon into a boar mm. in A Link to the Past. And that when... Uh, when the author wrote that and, and I saw it, I was like, immediately I thought of A Link to the Past. I was like, man, I love that game so much. And I just hadn't thought about like why Ganon was a boar and it's so great. <laughs> I just, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to play it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, um, well, let me just spoil my number two then because our reasoning is basically the same. 
My reasoning was any reference to Ocarina of Time, which was the first Zelda game I completed, though I definitely played the first one and I think this even the second side scroll 2D one before that, but like the Ocarina of Time was the first one that I could actually understand mechanically beat. You know, I owned the strategy guides and actually played the whole thing and yada yada. So just any time they mentioned it, I could man, yeah, iconic music, incredible kind of semi-open 3d world but not really but as a child it tricks you no problem it's a very immersive feeling and so yeah i think I, anytime it was referenced all i could think was wow what a special game i'll always remember having played it <laughs> yeah yeah that's <laughs> that i think a link to the past was my first um first game oh yeah um, i could see that yeah so it it's very nostalgic for me for sure yeah, for sure um how about your number two and then i'll do my three sure my number two um uh was a reference to breath of the wild on page 17 it's the cross-dressing mm. episode where uh link is is very androgynous and he has to um infiltrate a town by dressing as a woman um, yeah the i just thought that that was women. hilarious <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and i just i just love like little quirks like that in the game that like it's not just you know battle heavy but it's also interactions and stuff and breath of the wild has been like such an amazing game anyway so any excuse really to play it (laughs) yeah yeah revisit a favorite you know that um that segment of that game got some real critical grief when it was released but it's well but it's also just caught up in the kind of like I don't know. We're, we're in a moment of like pop. Um, what's the words I'm looking for? I was gonna say pop culture. That's not quite right. I guess like uh, we're in a like issues around laws around like trans communities big right now. And so anytime you have these like gender sex identity blending passing issues, I just I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting to apply analysis like that to the game. I just don't think the game holds up well because I don't think the creators quite meant it to you know, be that to embody that. But I think, it, yeah, anyway, because like even I knew that that happened in that game because of probably some YouTube essay video I watched about it. But it's like I'd never played that game. But even I was aware that like, oh, yeah, there's a section where he has to pass as a woman. And that's kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah. So, well, if you're interested, those thoughts are out there. People have written about this topic. Um, but anyway, I know it didn't come up in the essay. It just reminded me of it. My number three, let's go back in time, was, to be honest with you, Amanda, just that big fat chart of compare contrast. (laughs) And the reason for this is because it did make me wonder about some of the entries in the franchise I have not played. So that actually, when I had to think of like moments that made me want to, that's probably maybe not should be my number one, but it did definitely pull me towards, oh yeah, there's some games in this franchise that I am intrigued by and have never gotten around to. Maybe I should. That's yeah, that's an excellent point actually because I certainly have not played every single Zelda game yeah. and that chart definitely like highlighted certain things about the games. I don't think that I ever even finished playing Skyward Sword. Yeah, um, on the Wii. Yeah. Right. I never finished playing that um that was um being an adult <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. you find especially with with kids time is tight married, it is, yeah gotta manage that so, time precious exactly. resource <laughs> yeah yeah and Zelda games can be long too that's the other they thing is be. not every game is kind of the size shape and length that a adult with children like you said can handle no question exactly how about for your number one moment um, just reading all of the unmasking grief, the explorations mm-hmm. of uh, Majora's Mask, it, every because the author just went so in depth, or the authors, I think there were three. Yeah, <clears throat> they just went so in depth with with like the describing certain scenes, and then like my one of my favorite things is the uh, the dancing ghost. Um, because it was just so out there. And so reading that scene in particular, I was just like, man, I really got to play this game again. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's got such oddity charm about it. It's so offbeat it and strange that it's why people love it, hate it. It's for some people, they, yeah, they can't stand the entry because it took some weird risks and breaks some Zelda rules. So no, that's a good one. My number one 
for whatever reason that, that when this bro- was brought up, this premise took me right back. And it's the kind of light and dark worlds idea. This is an archetype that one of the essays plays with is the idea that in some Zelda games, there are like literally two separate worlds that exist parallel to each other. But, you know, one is dark and corrupted. The other one's like, you know, light and good and pure and like healthy. Anyway, but this made me want to play A Link Between Worlds, which might be my favorite edition in Zelda, actually, sneakily. Oh, yeah. So and that is a game that has um, like parallel worlds to it. Not all of them do. Not all the Zelda games rely on that kind of trope. Uh, and I actually just Googled it. I don't know how I played this, though, because it was on the 3DS. How did I play this? Because so, like, as soon as I read that, I was like, wow, I did love that entry. I think I borrowed my friend's 3DS. I don't remember doing this. I think I did it one summer, actually. It was a 2013 release. But I just, anyway, yeah, it's just so ingrained in my brain. This, like, you would, you know, transition between the two different worlds and you would kind of, you know, they had, like, different mechanics in each one or different kind of, like, they would repeat some zones, but obviously things are very twisted and, like, different and off and everything. So they sometimes do that with time as well, where it's, like, you go forward or backward in time and that changes the world. But, yeah, I just, I think that premise is is quite intriguing. I always like it. Yeah. You're number one. Oh, you said it. The mask. Yeah, Majora's yeah. Mask. Mm-hmm. Majora's Mask. One that does not have alternate worlds, but has a doomed world. <laughs> Countdown <laughs> clock. Yeah, that moon was like super creepy too. I remember seeing the moon. And I was like, man, that thing is like. It really so is kind of gnarly looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as like a kid, it is kind of just surprisingly fucked up looking. Something about it. <laughs> it just goes to show you that sometimes good art, even if it's not the highest um, pixel quality carries through you know it's like you don't need all the technical or um technicalities not all the technical high-powered fidelity things just to make something really gnarly looking because it is weird looking Uh, looks like it's in anguish (laughs) i also forgot that essay revealed that the ending of the game takes place on the moon i completely forgot that i it's like i remember doing the boss and using the masks but i couldn't i didn't know that you like traveled to the moon so that's kind of cool yeah, get in that moon. Okay, any um, <laughs> any that'll be the rallying cry. Get in that moon. Any <laughs> final thoughts on the psychology of Zelda? At least the first half so far. Uh, no, I'm I'm hoping that the the latter half also has some some specificity ingrained into it. So I my hope we'll is that they felt the need to dump all the archetype ones at the front because they're so foundational to even knowing what the series is like. And now we can get down to business. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> um, if more of them are like the grief essay, j- just give me some new concepts, you know, just, I just change it up a little bit. Like there's so many things and you said you did a minor and it's like, I didn't do any further study past the you know AP high school class. So it's like, give me something that even I haven't heard of, please in a way that I can <laughs> understand. But it's just like, I, yeah, I don't know. I was hoping for something a bit more specific. Uh, listener, you'll have to check in next week when we do our part two book club on this book to see if it does in fact go deeper as we'd hoped, or maybe just kind of languishes in archetypes forever. <laughs> and we're stuck talking about the same stuff. Uh, Thanks, as always, of course, for listening through all the way until the end. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the major platforms. It helps a ton. You know, a five-star rating and review is extremely good for promoting the show. Next episode, we'll begin with the Protective Power of Destiny essay, and then we're going to spoil the whole book next time in part two. So if you want to read along with us, just get up to the end of the book, and you'll be all the way caught up, 100% ready to rock. Again, Instagram and Facebook, follow us there. Those are our social media accounts at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word we appreciate those follows and until next time we'll see you between the pages <laughs> <laughs>